usually for half time, I invite people to go to the loo. Uh, just tell me how long you spoke to Carl Coco the Clown. So the first time I talked to him was uh, three and a half hours, yeah. Uh, for the last hour of that, I desperately needed a wee and was sort of figuring out ways to sit in which I could mitigate the, the effects of that. Um, and I was thinking, can I just go and wee um, and will Carl notice? Um, will he care, even? Um, but I managed to get through it and sort of hastily said, look, I'll call you tomorrow and we'll, we'll arrange your number into you because I, I need to go. <laughs> I didn't say where I was going, but I needed to go. I had a chat with Jonathan Wilson, the brilliant football writer, who's written a piece, um, we're talking on uh, April 25, and he wrote it two days ago, it's about the European Super League coming by stealth, and it is absolutely brilliant. And Jonathan Wilson, the Sunderland fan, he knows that football at elite level is a sham, and it's completely shambolic. Uh, And I suppose because he's a Sunderland fan, he gets to kind of look up. Uh, the, the mighty gods, much like Blackpool, who are subject of this book, How Not to Run a Football Club, uh, by Nathan Fogg with two Gs. What yeah. books inspired you, either style or substance? Ooh, that's a good one. I, to be honest, it wasn't a book. It was more long-form articles, like the one you've read with Jonathan Wilson. It was more the fact that sometimes you'll get these people. So, so like, I'm a big basketball fan. Uh, so in a couple of years ago, well, last year, not two years ago, the NBA went into... That everything else was disrupted from COVID and they went into a, a bubble to finish the season and yes. they finished it at Disney World in Orlando where it was all locked down and they had all the players there and it was sort of this uh, quarantine area and they finished the season there and the players and it was really successful. And Obviously, in that period, they had, you know, journalists would go in and every journalist was fogging a book and they were writing these articles. Um, and I just hoovered it all up because that sound is so fascinating, not talking about the games um, and, like, who scored, you know, the back and forth of the matches. It was more just the anecdotes and the stories and the way these long-form writers do it now is, is they're just packing anecdotes. And an anecdote that might not even seem that interesting, but it's interesting when it's Charlie Adam and Ian Holloway and you're, you're not the players and managers that you support. So in my book, there's not really much description of football uh, other than the, when we beat Cardiff in the Man United game where you try and sort of get some of those old emotions back out of people. Other than that, there's really not much talk about, you know, games and, and my, you know, I didn't want it to be full of match reports so you know, I've never wanted to write match reports or anything I found it very boring so it was these long form articles where you just keep reading this you know you, you know when you you, you you click on something on Twitter that's been recommended and then you can see your scroll bar and you realise it's tiny and you can realise you can scroll and scroll and scroll and you think yeah this is good I'm getting a coffee and I've got 6,000 words to read yeah. I wanted it to be like that where you could just keep reading and there's no natural obviously the chapter breaks the natural breaks but it just kind of flows and flows and there's one story and after another and after another and it just kind of it kind of keeps you going, and I think a lot of people have said they read it in one night, so that was very... Oh, wicked. Very no, that's the ultimate compliment. There is um, a resurgence in long-form journalism, based on the American style of people like Norman Mailer from the boxing world, <clears throat> but football is finally waking up to, not book length, but, yeah, six, 7,000 words, and there ha- William Watt, I suppose, could have gone to The Athletic in 2012 and written a piece about what was going yeah. on because the athletic would be able to fund any legal representation but because william was working at the blackpool gazette, gazette thank you um he couldn't so yeah, he was no, eventually yeah. banned and um he's there in the book and it's just sad I, i've written this question was it depressing or cathartic to write this book um, it was. It was neither. It was. It was. Um, it was. I was totally removed from everything. So I was so into it. Is you know, I was. I was so passionate and boycotting and going to protests and like, just wanted to go on the games and things. But for some reason, I just kind of went into this mode where Owen and Carl and all the things I've done, and I just almost saw them as you know, it was almost like I was writing a fiction book, which for legal reasons I will 100% say 
it wasn't it was all true <laughs> but in terms of the mode in my head it was almost like there weren't real people i was i was i was just so detached from it which is weird because that is i think a good journalistic thing to do but i didn't do it intentionally it just kind of happened so it was very odd it was like i was writing about things i didn't i, I wasn't involved for um which i think really helped a book um and get a sort of layer of, of objectivity but um no, I, I don't really know how i got into that space but i, I did i just sort of saw it as like it was something that didn't affect me even though it did i think it's always the way to go if someone knows a lot about it but pulls themselves away and let the facts speak for themselves. Because a lawyer can, Keir Starmer, for instance, can argue the case passionately and he can bring in real world examples. But ultimately, you've got to fight for the truth and decency and integrity. And I, far be it from me to compare the current government, who have probably, as we speak, just lost the local elections by a landslide and Blackpool Football Club. Hopefully. But... We don't do politics in the football. Of course we do politics in the football library. That's why we've got the Andy Holt Lounge with Good Morning By The Way on the walls. Uh, the Andy Holt Lounge is a place where you can decompress and have your coffee and sit and read these long articles. And the football library itself has books of every stripe, as well as the brick fanzines. Um, what did you call your anti oyston fanzine? Um, one was called... Tangerine Theory, which was a joke my friend told me because he said all these pretentious, really smart fanzines where we were all thinking about football. And I said, yeah, that actually sounds good. So that was a stupid name. And then the other one was just called 1887. But it was, um, I used a lot of imagery from the American Revolution. I used the join or die uh, Benjamin Franklin's sort of the severed snake because I wanted to, it was about United Blackpool fans. Because there were still some Blackpool fans who weren't into the protest and wanted to support the team. And it was always a distraction, get behind the lads, that type of thing. So I, my message in, in the 1887 fanzine was join or die, and if we don't do this together, we'll, we'll all sort of perish, or I suppose, very dramatic, obviously, you know, the writer is nothing but dramatic, so, um, <laughs> but eventually <laughs> I think everyone did get behind the cause. And what year was this? Uh, 2015. Yes. 2016, 2015. Yeah, 2015, 2016. I was at the Vic, and you know what's coming. Blackpool were 2 0 up at half time. Oh, yeah. Slavisha Djokanovic, I think, slapped every member of the team and said, what on earth are you doing? What on earth? This is Blackpool, lads. <laughs> Igalo scored four goals. It was a 7-2 win. It was the most goals Watford have ever scored in a half of football. And Watford were made to look great and we got promoted and Blackpool didn't. There were fewer away fans than usual. So that was, I think, spring 2015. So what was the protest boycott? doing at that time um so that's still paul Lynch, isn't it so no sorry so that's lee clark so so the thing yes. with that 2015 2014 15 season um is the club had offered two-year season ticket deals uh the year before at a really cheap rate it was about 195 well i'm saying about it was exactly 195 pound for pence because it's the year of 1953 uh stanley matthews the, the cup final so they did that in 2013-14 and then they extended it for a second year you could sort of buy two for a price well you know you could buy a year in advance type of thing so a lot of fans wanted to protest and boycott, and by then we realised the shit show it was. But we already had a season ticket, so it's like you're not really, you're obviously you can't really boycott. I mean, you can do it just to get the numbers, the money's already gone type of thing. The real sort of efforts really sort of multiplied that summer when we were in League One because every, all of a sudden nobody had their um, season tickets anymore, and now we actually could do it. So that sort of artificially locked people into going a little bit, although obviously some just said, I'm not going anywhere, I don't care if I've paid no money. What was the year when Blackpool won only four games? So that was a calendar year between 
20, so we went down to Plymouth, we got two men sent off in the last minute, and then we played Derby the next game, and we had three more men sent off. So we had five players sent off in two games, which is more games than we won. So, yeah, so we won four games in a year, and we had five men sent off. I, I remember I did some stuff about that, which got a few likes on Twitter. So that was in between December 2014 and December 2015, a year, I think. Oh, I see. So that was why... Months. That was why it was so joyous when Blackpool went 2-0 up at Watford. Yeah, it was a very rare occasion, yeah. I remember I was actually working at university. I was doing a project, so we were also in the editing suite working on videos, and all my mates were... I was like, look at this, we're winning 2-0 at Watford. And I was like, look at this, we're losing 3-2. Look at this, we're losing 5-2. Look at this, we're losing 7-2. All my mates knew about it before. It was just hilarious. It was January 24th. I think I went because it was my birthday um, that the week before. And uh, yes... Watford 7, Blackpool 2. I don't know if you remember the 11. Well, I know we were playing Elliot Parrish. He was the backup goalkeeper who had played about 30 games of football uh, in his career, all from lower leagues. And we dropped um, the keeper, um, what's he called? Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis, yeah, thank you. Um, He was was having a decent season, if you can say anyone was having a decent season. It was was thought of as a, a decent championship player. Uh, and as I write in the book, if there's a list of reasons why we were losing games, he was at the, at the bottom of that list. Um, and Lee Clark was essentially told to drop him because we would have to pay Cardiff 40, 40 grand if he played 40 games as part of the loan agreement. Which, 40 grand for a decent goalkeeper is not a lot of money when you're still getting parachute payments of 8, eight million that year. But anyway, we dropped him for this Elliot Parish, who I think in the first, his first game he conceded seven goals. So, yeah, that uh, shows how well that went. No. Oh. I think on Watford fans' part, it was the return of the Noz, Nyron Nosworthy, who helped us uh, into the playoffs yeah. in 2013, was back at the Vic playing for Blackpool. Uh, we signed that... a lot of players on, on one month. So when, when Joe, so we started that year with Jose Riga, who signed a lot of lower league Belgian and French players who were absolutely awful. Um, and then we brought in Lee Clark, and he signed a lot of players on one-month contracts, like Chris Eagles, Nyron Nosworthy, Jamie O'Hara, Players you've heard of, but there's a reason you're getting them on one month contracts. It's because the legs don't work anymore. And is that Peter Clark at the back? Peter Clark, yeah, he came back. Yeah, he was a player who felt well. At least he's given, you know, he gives a shit. You know, oh. so he, he was, you know, at least he he, he was trying, and, and, he, and he was all right. But he was, he was, he probably would have been all right in League One, um, but he was uh, not not good enough for the championship. And. Um... My friend uh, Gary came up with a chart. Tommy Hoban is having a party. Bring Ben Watson and Minari. That will mean nothing to anyone apart from Watford fans. But all three of those played in that game. Vidra, Igalo and Dini. That's a a forward line, isn't it? That is. That's a good championship forward line. And of the starting 11 for Watford, only one, Craig Cathcart, ex-Blackpool, is there. Good players, so, yeah. I mean, Craig Cathcart was the only, probably the only good. No, we, we we signed two or three good players in the Premier League. Craig Cathcart being one of them. We signed him the day before the game, so we signed. We we got from to a Premier League. We didn't sign a single player to the week of our first game. So I don't think we'd train together if we had to train together once. And Craig Cathcart was was good then. You could tell he had, he had quality. I don't know if he really ever kicked on and massively improved uh, as this sort of highlight. To be honest, he was he was uh, one of our few good signings that year. Yeah, you could tell he came through the ranks at United. He's a very good player. Cool as Craig, he was called, although someone compiled Craig's list. So every time he made a mistake. But he didn't make a mistake against Man City because he didn't start. He had, he had a, I don't know if he still does this, but he had an annoying tendency. He had two annoying tendencies, man. One was to put his arm up for an offside every time whilst a player is currently running forward. And like it's like, can you put your arm down and just run after him, please? Because he's through on goal. Um, the second one was that he would get a header off a corner 
and he would always go just three inches over the bar. So once again, Craig Kafka would nail this goal from a header off a corner, and I just thought, can you just somehow aim it three inches lower? Because you're incredibly consistent. It's just on the wrong side of the crossbar. He is. He's one of ours now. He's a, he's a Watford legend, although at this point, at the end of May, when this goes out, who knows who's going to stay at Watford. Um, what do Blackpool need in the squad for next season? I think what we need is um, a number 10. So a lot of our stuff comes from crossing and the wing-backs and things like that. And we, we move the formation around a lot, which, you know, draws the eye of fans at some time. I mean, as football fans, we don't really understand what's going on in the game. But what we can understand is when the team changes and when the formation changes. And if it works, it's because of that. If it doesn't work, it's because of that. So that's we, we sort of hang on to the low-hanging fruit. But I think what, we, what we're able to recognise as fans is that there's clearly a lack of sort of drive from the middle and, and quality from the number 10 position. So I think, uh, I think that's sort of player who can drive into space and be a playmaker behind the strikers is, is our biggest um, our biggest need. Was Brett Ormerod a 9 or a 10? He was a 9 when he was the player, when he was with Blackpool in his first uh, segment uh, in sort of the late 90s, early 90s. He was, he played on a wing a lot, so we played, when, when Ian Holloway came in, we played three attackers and we rotated them so you could start on that wing and you go on that wing and up front, so... He was uh, he was an he was an attacker. Uh, we'll put it that way. But yeah. he, he certainly wasn't a number ten. Number ten was about Stephen Dobby. Ah yes, uh, Brett Ormerod. You say your first hero sold for one point seven five million pounds. How much of that was reinvested into the squad? Yeah. Do you think? <laughs> um, well, the question is still where's the Ormerod money buried? It's underneath one of the stands. We're actually replacing the East stand. So if you, if you dig it all up, I might find it somewhere. Mm, uh, allegedly, uh, the book begins. The book begins in 1986, and I didn't realise that, uh, along with Middlesbrough, who who did go into liquidation, Blackpool could have gone into liquidation. You actually used the word condemned. Stayed in, yes, so this is before my time. I started going on in, uh, after the stand. Well, no, yeah, in 2000, so the stands are still currently being sort of re, re, uh, renovated. But, yeah, I mean, Blackpool... You could get thirty thousand in that stadium, uh, and they did. Um, um, but it just kept getting slashed and slashed and slashed in capacity because it just wasn't safe. So they took the roof off the, the spion car. They started saying you can only stand in half of that stand, and then they just closed it completely. And there was it was you know this is after Hillsborough and the Bradford City fire, so a lot of fans are very worried that this was a um, you know this, they, they failed to get a safety certificate over Christmas so they had to close the stand over for a few weeks you know the, the floodlights would sway they had to chop the floodlights in half because they would sway in, in the in the sea air so it was a very it was a very sort of risky place and obviously they, they, they kept talking about how they were going to bring a new 50,000 super stadium into to Blackpool even more about 3,000 were going on the games and we were just they were just saying look can we just actually have somewhere that's safe and we eventually just decided you know what we'll just we'll just get some new stands and we'll do it that way I've just read John Newby's book, Addicted to Football, which is out yeah. on pitch as well. And John won the Youth Cup with Liverpool in 1996. And there's a new book about the Youth Cup out now, but I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> and coming out very well in that book was Billy Eyre, um, yeah. who was his coach at um, Bury. And Billy gets a mention as beloved and having a bond with fans. Did your dad like Billy Eyre? He did, yeah. So, you know, Billy would come out and he would wear, he would wear the football shirt at times as well. He would put the kit on, um, which is not really probably got on uh, wrongly to in some eyes. But he was loved and, yeah, the, the fans absolutely loved him. And that was one of the big issues they had with Owen Oyton was that we sacked him. Uh, and Owen was listening into, uh, I think it was a bit of chicane, it was some backstabbing. There was a, a right-hand man Owen had who didn't like Billy and wanted one of his guy put in. So um, I think they thought he was done a bit dirty and that, yeah, that, that sort of alienated Owen Oyton a bit, making that sort of decision. You may not know Billy Eyre, um, 
died of cancer and he was still going into work at Bur- at Bury for months without telling anyone that he was going in for um, radiotherapy in the afternoons. The sort of stories people can relate to because it's you know it's working class is is um, is one of those that type of thing and it's very sort of is that is the bond that you get with managers like that. Uh, even if you love, I mean, you, uh, I, I suppose I was going to say there's some of the Elsa at Leeds because because I, I work in Leeds a lot. I suppose that's a little bit different because he felt like he was one of your own uh, in in a way as well. But like, even if you sort of love some sort of uh, a foreign manager or someone who's talking about football philosophy and styles and it's all very suave and sophisticated. It's just a little bit different when it's some guy who's rolling his sleeves up called Billy Air, he's wearing a football kit, and you're, you're Blackpool in the 90s, and it's, um, uh, you just, you know, it's uh, kick and rush type of football. It was just, it was just a different time, wasn't it? And um, yeah. it was a time when that sort of thing was, was commonplace, and he was having success with Blackpool at the time as well, which is obviously the most important thing. So at the time that Billy Air was uh, manager, that we must say his name, Owen Oyston. A childhood fan who owned Miss World, and um, if you want to find out the character of Owen Oyston, there's a book, How Not to Run a Football Club. But he handed it on in 1999 to his son, Coco the Clown. Um, were you going to Blackpool regularly in 1999-2000? No, it was the next year, 2000-2001, so when I was six years old, I was going on that season. I see. Six? I, I didn't get into yeah. football until Euro 96, so I was... Eight. Yeah, um, I mean, it was. Uh, I think it was a, a safe-ish place to go because it was it was Division Three football and nothing was really kicking off too much. Uh, it was kind of a lull period, so I think my dad was uh, was was sort of fine of us going. And so you were part of what Coco the Clown calls an amorphous mob. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, it, he, 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 you know, this, these, these were sort of how, how he was describing it when he first joined the club. Is he just saw people foaming at the mouth and, and you know, frothing? And, and there are stories about, you know, his mum, who was the chairwoman or the chairman, as she called herself, um, being spat on by fans. And there was a lot of animosity. And you know what football fans are like. It can get nasty. So I, I have no... I mean, Carl wasn't a football fan. He, he'd been to three games in his life, Liverpool games, I think. Um, so he had no connection with football. And he's also a, a farmer who lives... Out in the sticks, who's you know born into a rich family, he's got no connection to the town or to the people. So it's not surprising to me at all that I came in and thought these football fans who were telling me how to spend my money or my dad's money, why you know they're all idiots and I know better and I'm just going to sort of do this my way. And then he eventually sort of met with fans and realised actually a lot of them are quite reasonable and they're not trying to get me to spend ten million um, on you know whoever whoever's in the newspapers that week. And actually a lot of them just want a team to be proud of. And I think he sort of. There was some cooling of tensions once he had that meeting around 1999, 2000, um, and they were able to sort of, I think a lot of fans were able to get on with Carl and Owen as owners um, for a few years because we didn't have any money, so we almost didn't realise what was happening or what we were missing out on. It's almost like we're at the bottom of a barrel anyway, so you don't sort of see the sort of, you know, Owen Oyston can't take 11 million out of the club because we don't have 11 million, mm. so we... It was a, a period of. Um, I mean, I grew up knowing Ocean out, and it was almost like an in joke for a while. But it wasn't. It wasn't venomous. It wasn't sort of animosity um, between that sort of period of 1999 to 2009. It was uh, peaceful coexistence, perhaps is the best way to put it. If you've got 23 other clubs in the division whose players are getting win bonuses and draw bonuses, and Blackpool are not, would that not persuade a Blackpool player to maybe go to one of those 23 clubs where a win bonus would exist? Yeah, I mean, I don't think Carl wanted those players if he were just in it for higher money. He said he would say good riddance. How uh, ironic! I know, I know. Well, that's the thing is, you know, I, 
Carl, what came out across to me is Carl just just detested footballers, and he, and he thought they were all overpaid, you know, pampered prima donnas. And you know, a lot of that's probably true. But you know, as I wrote in the book, this is the 1990s, 2000s, with footballers who were on hundreds, not not thousands, ten, certainly not tens of thousands. This is Division Three Blackpool in the, you know 2000s. It's it's been not making a lot of money, and these are mostly working class lads who have come up, you know, training early mornings and, and doing you know sort of. They're just sort of normal guys, aren't they? They're not, they're not sort of, you know, born into a, a, a system like Man City or Real Madrid or, you know, you know Barcelona. They're just jobbing through. You know, Brett Ormond was a cotton mill worker actually before he got his move to Appleton. Um, and whereas Carl Lawson is driving a Ferrari uh, and is born, is given uh, Blackpool FC not through any, not for any, any other reason whatsoever other than his own Ocean's son. So it was, uh, the disconnect is something he clearly couldn't see is that actually the footballers deserved to be there way more than he did. Um, and so that sort of animosity he had towards him uh, was, was, was a dis- it was like cognitive dissonance. I just don't yeah. think he ever really understood that. I've been thinking about how the Equality Act in 2010 did not discriminate for class. So if you're a woman or gay, that's a protected characteristic. If you're mm-hmm. working class or a TOF or a landowner, mm-hmm. that's not discriminatory. And I think what this story is, uh, given that Owen... Ray came from a working class man to a man with loads of money and handed it on to his son and literally did as a sort of benefactor slash mascot in the early years of of the Carl Coco the Clown reign. It's a story about class. Little Blackpool going to the Premier League in 2010, hiring the great Ian Holloway, who was, I think, the right man for the right town. Yeah, he played us up in the media, you know, he, he talked about how great Blackpool was and, and he was he knew how to play the media game amazingly and he would do his press conferences or, you know, at the cafe with a bacon butty and stuff and they would train on the beach and it was very sort of old school and, and they, they played up to it, he knew what he was doing, obviously, I mean, I'm sure, you know, he was quite well paid at Blackpool, but he, he knew how to pay, play that game of the underdog and the class thing and we're sort of second class citizens, we're getting the scraps and, you know, it's a bit like Moneyball, I suppose, in a, in a different sort of sense, so... Yeah, I mean, in that Premier League season, 2010-11, we had so much support from other fans, and I think it was because that summer it was the World Cup in 2010 where, yeah. you know, the golden generation, it was their last hurrah, and it, it went terribly. So, you know, we'd go to away games, and, and I think this is a bit, you know, I wouldn't do this myself now, it's a bit pathetic, but we were singing, you know, you let your country down to John Terry and Frank Lampard and things like that, um, and there was this real sort of, you know, if you were anti these players and, and you know, it was it was almost like peak era for England disappointment and, and rich players disappointment and, and the golden generation. So Blackpool were kind of an antidote to that, and I think a lot of people uh, enjoyed our our year and the way we were doing it. And we were the first team, I think, to actually go up and attack the league. So Swansea and Bournemouth got got sort of praise for that as well. But Blackpool were, we were the first team to do it and, and very nearly stayed up doing it. Yeah, very good point. And of course, Stan Matthews wasn't alive to see it, but. We're coming up to 70 years next year since the Mortensen final, brackets Matthews. Um, was How your... good do you have to play where Stan Mortensen scored a hat-trick and yet it's called the Stanley Matthews fan? Yeah. But how good Stanley Matthews must have played that day. I think Stan Mortensen should have got a knighthood when Stan Matthews did. But again, a class thing uh, because he's, Matthews seemed to be adopted as, oh, he's the footballer in a day when... Um, the suits still ran football. It's a, that is the biggest class war in this country is in football, especially in the elite level. And I'm taking a sabbatical from the top tier, which means I'll pay more attention to what Blackpool are doing. And this is the club of Jimmy Armfield, 
Stan Matthews, Charlie Adam, Nathan Delfonso, Ian Everett, <laughs> Peter Clark. Um, 2001, Blackpool got promoted to the second division after finishing seventh. Be honest, did you expect the playoffs to be a struggle or a breeze? Uh, 2001, uh, when I was seven years old, so I had no idea. So that's actually my first memory. When I was six years old, I think. So that was my first memory of football, was the Millennium Stadium game where we played later in our own. I was going on that year, but I can't really remember it. But that was a very vivid remember uh, memory. I met Carl Hodgson, actually. We met Carl Hodgson, we got a picture of him, which I tried to get him a book, but it, it wouldn't scan properly. So there was a picture of me and my dad with Carl outside Millennium Stadium where we were playing last when we was being renovated, um, when I was about six. Little did he know I would be writing a book about him 20 years later. Uh, exposing everything. We went down 1-0 after 40 seconds, which was a goal I missed because we were still walking to our seats, I think. Uh, Phil Barnes slipped and they scored. Um, but we came back and we won 4-2. Um, and our period of success in finals carried on for the next decade. I'm just checking, sorry about this, I'm just checking when this goes out because the date was May 26, 2001. I think I'm going to put this out on May 26. 2022. Wow. I've got the score and the lineup here. Do you want to name the 11? Oh, gosh. So, so this, is completely, this is a bit tricky because we got into three finals in three years, but I'm going to say it was Phil Barnes, yes. goalkeeper, Gary Parkinson, right back. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Brian Reed and Ian Hughes, centre backs. Mm-hmm. Um, left back's going to be tricky now. Um, let me let me come back to left back, but I know uh, it would have been Paul Simpson left wing, Richie Wellens centre mid. Richie Wellens, yes. Yeah, so it's Brett Ormod up front and John Murphy up front. So who's the other centre mid? Is or Lee Collins? Uh, Lee Collins was uh, not in the sixteen. Oh, okay. Yeah. That must be a couple of years later. Right midfielder. Who's right midfielder? Danny. Oh, Danny Coyd, young young Danny Coyd, yeah. Uh, young lad who came through Blackpool system. Uh, and then centre midfield, I think it might be, um, is it Mike Milligan or Jamie Milligan, one of them two brothers? The Milligans came off the bench late on. Yeah. Oh gosh, who was your centre midfielder? Phil. Oh, Phil Clarkson. Yeah. Scored one of the best goals of all time. If you go, if you YouTube Phil Clarkson goal. I think I did because I read it in the book. I think I did, one yeah. One of the best goals you'll ever see in your life but you had no right to do very Back away from goal hits it with his knee, goes behind him and back heels it in. It's absolutely ridiculous. So now we're just missing a left-back. And we had a lot of left-backs uh, throughout the years. Because I know Tommy Ashen played a couple of years later. Give me the first letter of the first name. Initials are JH. Oh, I don't know. Who is it? Uh, he is the assistant oh, manager... John Hills. John Hills. John Hills. John Hills. Assistant yeah, manager at Bamber Bridge at the moment. And he was... Yeah. He played for Blackpool, Fleetwood and Fylde. He came back to Blackpool for four games in 2007. <laughs> yeah, he was one of my favourite players growing up, John Hills. Uh, I'm disappointed. I got him, yeah. He was, he, was a, yeah. he was very good. Well, he was very good relative for Division 3 players. So you've, you've passed your test. Uh, by the way, on the, your football library... Oh, Dean Smith was a centre-back for Leighton Orient that day. On your football library card, do you want any of those players? Or do you want the man who had a power play and picked youth players because he disagreed with how the club was being run and who was manager of Blackpool on that day. Yeah, Steve McMahon, who, when we got to the LDD finals two years later, I can't remember which trip it was, we went twice, but we had Keith Southern, who played in the Premier League for us, and it was very good for us. And actually, one, we missed, he was injured for most of the Premier League season, could have got a few more points if he was playing. Um, but he was on loan from Everton, and he had this great season, and Steve McMahon dropped him and played Steve McMahon Jr. Mm. from a youth team, who was... Even Carl Oyston, who doesn't know anything about football, realised was a bad player and said that was pretty shameful. And um, he actually got... Stephen Warren went to Perth Glory and got fired for nepotism for playing his son, Stephen Warren Jr., who 
somehow came through the youth team when Ricky Lambert didn't. We cut Ricky Lambert when he was 18 years old, so we picked Steve McMahon Jr. over him. Again, Blackpool being badly advised and running the dugout is not a new phenomenon. There are, there are some great stories about Steve McMahon, which unfortunately couldn't go in just because it wasn't really covering that period, but we went to play in the Isle of Wight, or the Isle of Man, um, uh, let's just say Isle of Man, uh, for a pre-season tour. And Steve McMahon wasn't happy with any of the pitches, so we didn't play any games or do any training. We just sort of went out and got pissed, and it was the first, the only pre-season tour where players came back out of shape, more out of shape. Jesus. And at the end of it, um, a reporter asked him, how was your time on the island? And it, this had all been paid for by the Isle of Man tourist board. So it was all on their money to, to sort of bring publicity to the island. And Steve McMahon said... It was like being an Alcatraz for two weeks. <laughs> I, I guess that's in Phil Shaw's book of football quotations, one of many books in the football library. How Not to Run a Football Club is there, and it is of the kind of caveat emptor, fa- fan em- caveat fan, the fan yeah. beware of things going wrong. And yeah, it's 2007, 10 wins in a row, promoted to the championship. But what line do you use to describe that season? The Oh, foundations built on sand. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he always says it. So as he said to me, what do we get out of all that 90 million and all that football and play the best trips or whatever? He said, we got pop-up sprinklers, mate. That's all we got, which was the only money that I went into the training ground with some pop-up sprinklers. So it was all all entirely done on Ian Holloway and most players. And as soon as Ian Holloway and most players left, there was nothing left. Um, there was no training ground. There was no scouting, you know, sports science, we were using, when we, when we got promoted to the Premier League, we were using a, a student from UConn studying sports science, uh, or analytics, sorry, so our, our scout our analytics guy was an 18-year-old on a work placement. Um, we were using, you know, a kit man on 150 quid a week, who was a, who was a taxi driver part-time, and it was all done on Ian Holloway and Steve Thompson, the assistant coach, so it's all, that is foundations built on sound, because that's not, when you talk about, and these are buzzwords, obviously, when you talk about philosophies and legacies and things like that, but that's what it means, it means when one player goes, one manager goes, the system carries on about him, whereas Apple realised that that wasn't what it was at all. I said we'd talk about the protests and the boycotts and the court cases, but... I imagine you've done some interviews where you've had to talk about the protests, the Huddersfield match that was abandoned, um, the fans forum that you moderated, um, and the court case between the Bellacon and Coco the Clown, um, which I'd forgotten about but have now remembered since. Quick question to sum it all up. At what point did Coco the Clown become an unfit and improper owner of Blackpool Football Club? When did the fans twig? I think... Um, well, I think a lot of people knew all the way throughout, but it's hard to argue when we're getting promoted and we get into the Premier League. Um, I think we're Premier League season where we realised we were playing a different sport to everybody else because we just couldn't sign anyone and it was chaos. I think people knew it was in over his head. Once he just really dug his heels in and said, this is how it's worked before, so 2012-13, once Holloway left, it exposed, you know, Michael Apple comes in to replace Holloway, it lasts for 40 days, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. So probably 2012-13 there is when we sort of call us and protests start and the season pops up which becomes Blackpool Supporters Trust um, and then I think the way he fought back with fans and everyone had his number and he would argue back with fans everyone in Blackpool had a story about how they've texted Carl Larson and he's texted them back calling him a calling him a yeah certain mm. words so um, it was about that time I'd say when, he, when everyone, everyone sort of realised because he had his defenders up until 2013 and even beyondwards afterwards to be honest because he had a good record what can you say we got promoted a lot if I were to make a film of this book and ha- it should be optioned someone should make this a film starring I don't know who 
would play Coco the Clown? No, this is, I've been asked this question a lot. Who should play them? Uh, someone did say Daniel Radcliffe's probably old enough to play him now. Yeah. Uh, I used to be cut off. Uh, I, I, if, I, if we were doing it and make a film, I would like them to do it as a farce, sort of like um, Death of Stalin. Yes. Because the way they all scramble and, and Owen and Carl have fallen out now after the court case with Bellacon, as soon as they lost, they all fell out. And the way they all sort of point things at each other and flaming arguments, it's set up for some sort of comedy where, even though this would be a huge compliment to Carl Lawson having Jason Isaacs play him, like he does in Death of Stalin, where he plays that general, uh, that was something that um, I would uh, I would enjoy uh, having that sort of... Have Amandi Iannucci uh, write it, might uh, be my dream. He would. And then I get a check for it as well, it was also my dream. Yeah, and, and you'd get to hang out with Armando, who is the genius of British satire. Um, well, I've got a happier note to finish on. If I were Armando Iannucci, a special role would be written for Derek Spence of the Community yeah. Trust. I think you should make him or perhaps Simon Sadler, who was the fan who got rich in Hong Kong and then bought the club for £9 million, which is an amazing investment. He'll, he'll already win back money there. And that'll be your second book, How to Run a Football Club. But Derek Spence of the Community Trust, there is a sequence, well, it's in the, it's in the epilogue, isn't it, with Derek? Yeah, so it's a very good book and sort of start and finish. It, start, it mentions him in the prologue and then it only interrupts him and it ends with him in the epilogue. And I only interviewed Derek quite late, so I'd written most of the book and as soon as he told me this, I like scampered to put it in. But Derek was, yeah, he, so he was an ex-Bartful player, an ex-football player who was working for the Community Trust which built, you know, the, the community is attached to the football club. It's a business, it's a charity, and it's won awards recently for, for mm-hmm. their work. They won the Northwest Football Awards a couple yes. of years ago, maybe last year. Um, and Derek Spence built that, basically, with, along with others as well. Um, and he was working out of uh, his converted garage in Fleetwood, even though, the phone, even though if you looked at the, you know, online on the phone bank or whatever, it said Blackpool, Blackpool Road, because Carl wanted people to think he was working there, but wouldn't let him, because Carl had no interest in the community trust other than once he started making a million a year, he was like, oh, suddenly I'll put myself on the board. Um, and anyway, Carl would, according to Derek Spence, basically just belittle him and, and him trying to embarrass him in meetings. And, you know, Derek was Irish. He, he said that Carl would make jokes about that. He said he would he would make jokes about, you know, his hearing aid, which Derek had, which he said sometimes would run out of battery and Carl would suddenly start in, in meetings with others. He would suddenly start peppering Derek with questions like Brian Tanner to try and embarrass him because he couldn't hear very well. Uh, and he said that Derek Spence said, well, when he left in 2015, 16 uh, era, he said that he underwent four years of counselling because his therapist told him he had anxiety through the roof, which he'd never, he'd never seen anyone this this sort of anxious before. Um, and that was from working with the Orson, that was from working in the club trying to help it when fans are boycotting. Um, and he said, Derek said that um, after you know 20 years of working there, he never once got free tickets, never once got comped. He did. That's not why he was doing. It. Obviously, he carried on working there. He, he was happy anyway, but. He never got once he even said, look, come and sit in our box. Uh, we'll give you a, a little dinner for all the work he did. And then in 2019, when Bartle got to Wembley under Simon Sadler, um, he was at home one day and his wife called him and said, you've got a letter from a football club. You better come and come and take a look at it. And it was Simon Sadler who had never, he'd only met Derek Spence once, I think, at a function before, but Derek Spence resigned years before Simon Sadler came and they'd never worked together. So Simon Sadler had, would have every excuse to not know who he even was. But Simon Sadler had sent him two VIP tickets to Wembley on, on the house and said, you know, thanks for your work here. And Derek Spence at that point sort of burst into tears and, and it was sort of validation and recognition and, and emotion of everything that I'd worked for. And he said, that's just kind of man Simon Sadler is. Yeah. I mean, that's the story of the book. For such a decent man to get undone by indecent men, and indecent is a euphemism there. 
um, to have Blackpool in the news for its football team, and you should beat Derby and Peterborough at least. Uh, a top half finish is possible. Yeah, I think a lot of our fans uh, who I spoke to they said, um, and you know, what football fans are like we think their club is bigger and better than it probably is. But a lot of them just said we feel like a championship club. Um, it just feels like we we should be, you know, you know, like a Barnsley League One Championship every sort of up and down, up and down. But I, I, I sort of see that, you know, and especially with the investment, you know, Simon Tyler's put a lot of money into the stadium, getting rid of all the just the amateur of stuff about it, the rusting and the panels falling out. He's just making it a bit more, you know, uh, professional, and he's putting money in towards, um, you know, fan. You know, he, I think he just donated a thousand pounds to a fan mural for, for Jimmy Armfield the other day. Oh, so. Okay at the Armfield Club around the corner which is a sports club so it, it does feel like we've just you know we still one of the cheaper teams in, in the team in the, in the, in the league um, so we, the money's going behind the scenes rather into the, into the players but it's it, it's just it's we've got a, a competent owner who nobody really knows anything about and you know maybe that's a worry in 10, in 10 years time maybe we'll be writing a, another how not to run another fo- how not, not to run a football club um, but at the moment he seems like a perfect owner where he stays in Hong Kong he delegates and he gives money and he, he he knows what it's about with fans. He is a fan, and he just kind of lets lets. Yeah. He stays like you said. No one's heard of him. No one had heard of him before he bought the club. Um, he he doesn't do interviews. He doesn't do press, and that's why I want to have an honor, to be honest. Write a check and stay out of the way. The only concern I have is that China are making moves into Hong Kong, and in China the money can't leave, which is why um, the um, investment company that bought into Milan had to quietly duck away very quickly. So I I don't know why now because he could have bought it earlier. I think he was probably waiting for the court case, which is... Yes, he, he, he did, yeah. So he didn't want to buy, give money to Owen Iveson, really. Not a penny more. Not a penny more, yeah. yeah. So he was... Uh, he was. Uh, I guess it's a bit easy to boycott when you're around the world, but he was, he was a part of that boycott in a sense, I suppose. Indeed. So um, as we speak, we're not sure if we're going to have um, the Nathan Fogg derby, but would you go to Turf Moor to watch Burnley play Blackpool? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, I... Uh, I, we just lose every time though I mean I was you know growing up in Burnley all my friends Burnley fans gave me stick for it and I remember when we had Holloway and we were there was a couple of years we were just was better than Burnley we played them off the park a couple of times at Bloomfield Road I was like you're going to see you're going to finally see we're just so much better than you and we were better than them but we were just laying egg at, at Turf more and playing rubbish so I would go but with low hopes uh, and I just hate that song we sing you know the, when we score it's just it, you know, bad memories of Turf more but maybe, maybe better ones ahead I would hope so. And if anyone wants to write about a, a book about Burnley, it, they've run it well. They've just been taken yeah. by a venture capital who see the loss of 150 million quid and go, quick, let's shoot the manager and not shoot the strikers. Bloody scoring. Um, I wish Blackpool so much luck in the next five years. Um, if you can challenge for the playoffs in the next few, even if you don't get there, you'll attract better players. I'm not sure if you're going to keep the manager, but Ian Evitt will be available as and when. Yeah. And look well, at the just, football you'll get. I know. Well, we just signed quickly to a long uh, contract extension, so we'll at least get a bit of money for him. Yeah. But I think he's, uh, I think he's in it for um, the medium term, anyway. Well, if Sean Dyche could do ten years at Burnley, yeah. um, and Jurgen Klopp's done six at Liverpool, I mean, Neil must be one of the longest-serving managers in English he football. Is. I mean, I hope we get some young coaches around him to sort of learn. You know, it's kind of a shame that there aren't many more English coaches around. Pep and Bielsa and things like that because mm. the quality of coaching is so high that there should be these trees of coaches that follow on um, uh, and you know I would hope that Blackpool will think about that as well Yeah, Rob Edwards has just helped Forrest Green, he was a coach yeah. with the FA and now he's 
done great in league football. Um, They're realising we need to get these qualifications. They can't just go from, well, some of them can obviously, but they can't no. just go from, I'm a guy you've heard of because he's played football and now I'm the, uh, no, now I'm a Derby manager. A lot of them, they're realising they actually need to get the coaching qualifications and learn uh, learn a bit about it first. We are, we're talking in a, a day on which Everton are in the relegation zone. Frankie Lampard's dad was a coach, but that doesn't mean much when you run badly as Everton are. This could be the season where Frank Lampard and Wayne Rooney both preside over two relegations and Paul Lintz has rescued Reading. What a funny world. I said it every time. I said he'll probably keep him up because he did it with Bath Boys. He's good at, I think, uh, as much as we like to talk about tactics and philosophies and all that, sometimes you can just get a little six-game bounce from someone coming in and saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm the governor and I'm really hard and I'm going to shout at you and, you know, we'll give you a kick up the backside. And I think that can probably work for a, for a, for a couple of weeks in it. That's all he needed, didn't it? Yeah, well, it's a crazy league, the championship, and you'll be going back to Reading next season. If you come to Vicarage Road, um, I'll show you the sights of our uh, redone um, town centre. And if Blackpool are playing Watford in September, hey, I might see you there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, get a shout out to you. That's wicked. The book is How Not to Run a Football Club. Um, it should be back on shelves for the second reprint, the Snyder Cut. Um, and have a wonderful, uh, have a wonderful summer. Have you got anything planned? We do. We we've we've got a packed full summer trying to make up some lost time. So we're going to Paris. We're going to Paris next month, where I'm doing some research for my uh, next book, which is going to be a fiction book about set around the time of the French Revolution. So we're going to be doing it's a big departure from uh, wow. from Battle. I suppose revolution is uh, a consistent theme. So. I'm going to be doing a little bit of uh, research into that. Wonderful. I'm not going to ask if the girlfriend status will be upgraded, but if it is, congratulations. <laughs> well, you know, I was talking to a friend recently who said his brother had just gone to Paris and engaged to his girlfriend of an £80 ring. Uh, so um, I think my girlfriend would... Uh, would uh, she'd be happy with an £80 ring. She, she, we, she's not one of those... Uh, she doesn't care about the rock in the ring, but no... Uh, that's, um, you've got me talking about half way too long. That's not happened. <laughs> that worked well. You are, uh, you wait until the PRS figures come through for the book selling. Yeah, the books well, yeah, yeah. Um, that will be exciting. So yeah, I think that happens next year because we do it annually. So that'll uh-huh. be a nice, uh, that'll be a nice deposit on a house or half a deposit on a house. So. <laughs>